0: Really? <laughs> I can hear you just fine. You have your Bibles open to the book of Second Timothy, chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three, verses fourteen through seventeen. It struck me as I prepared for this earlier this week, and I've looked at this many, many times. Second, uh, Timothy three sixteen and I automatically thought of John three sixteen and what they both say. Interesting. And you look at verse sixteen for yourself. You See what I'm talking about. As we talk about doctrine, and false teaching in the pastoral epistles, we're looking at discernment begins with the word of God. So the first question we must ask ourselves is, what is discernment? Why is it so important? Well, in a simple definition, you could say that discernment is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error and right and wrong. It's the process of making careful decisions when you're thinking about what to do. And careful distinctions about the truth. In other words, when you have a biblical discernment, you can think biblically. So you take a situation to have that ability to think very critically about what you're about to do or a life decision you're about to make. Now, as you look at the New Testament, discernment is not optional. It is required. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22... It says, examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. And in John, first John, chapter four, verse one, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we need to have this ability discernment as we look at what's true. And what's false, of course, you've heard the expression all over the media, fake news. Well, how do we discern all this information we're getting bombarded with day in and day out? How do we choose? How do we discern which is true and which is not? And the key to living an uncompromising life is to have this ability to exercise it. If you can't distinguish between what's real or what's true and what's false, you'll fall for anything. It gives a foothold for false teaching. False teaching leads to an unbiblical mindset. An unbiblical mindset leads to unfruitful and disobedient living. And that, of course, is a certain recipe for a life of compromise. Now, unfortunately for Christians, and that includes me, the sermon is an area where we stumble the most. We exhibit little ability to measure the things that we are taught against the infallible standard of God's Word. We unruly engage in all kinds of unbiblical decision-making because we are not armed to take a stand biblically against the onslaught of unbiblical thinking that we face every single day. What's the biblical stance on abortion? What's the biblical stance on homosexuality? What's a biblical response to the gender issue that we see happening in our land? That's just to name of few that we need to have this discernment if you go to God's word and look at what it has to say about all these issues. It's incumbent upon all of us to seize this discernment that God has provided for in his precious truth. Because without having the ability, we are like Or we are at risk of being tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful teaching. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. So it's very important that we have this discernment. Let's look at our text this morning, starting in verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God. Literally, that is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why is that? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Continue in the things you have learned. And become convinced of. That word translated continue. Is the same word we find in John chapter 8 verse 31. And John 15 verse 5. Where it's translated hold on to or remain. John eight thirty-one: If you continue in my word. Jesus says then you are truly disciples of mine. And then that John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me or remains in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit from apart from me, you can do nothing. But notice how he later, what you have learned, not only learned about it, but you actually come convinced of. Now, I don't know how many of you paid attention to this over here. I pointed out to my wife, she said, wait a second, when we cleaned the other day or helped Allison clean, this wasn't here, and she's absolutely right. Anyone even notice us sitting over here, Wonder why this chair was here? For this moment right now. See, here's a chair, all right? You can learn everything there is about a chair. You can learn about the manufacturer. You can learn about the physics that make it able to hold somebody sitting in it. You can look how it's a chair is used throughout different cultures and times. But until you actually sit in it, you're not convinced that it's going to hold you. You can push against it. You can have one of your friends sit in and watch them, and they'll tell you about it. But until you actually sit down in it, now you're convinced that it's going to hold you. Just like when you sat in that pew this morning. Didn't even have a second chance that you will sit down, and the pew's going to give way, and you hit the floor? You looked at that, you were convinced of it, you saw it, and you were convinced you sat down. This is what Paul is telling young Timothy. That's how he's encouraging the stuff that you've learned. But not only have you learned about it, but you have become convinced of it. So we can sit here every Sunday after Sunday, Bible school after Bible school, Bible lesson after Bible lesson, and learn all these facts and all these things about Israel's history, what Jesus did, what he did, what he said, the miracles. But until we really become convinced of it, it doesn't really mean anything. For salvation, you have to be convinced that he is the only way, that he is able to save you. It's one thing from this learning, the word of being convinced. He goes on to say, knowing from whom you have learned it from. And that word hume, another little Greek lesson here, that's a personal plural noun in the Greek, of course, but it's Plural. Interesting. Now he could be thinking about Timothy's mother and grandmother. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, Paul writes, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Perhaps he was thinking of them. Perhaps Paul was thinking about how he poured his own life in him. But that's plural. He's pointing out the fact that Timothy had learned the gospel from compassionate leaders. Not only did they teach them the basics of the gospel, who Jesus is, what he did, died on the cross, he rose again, he sits at the right hand of the Father. Not only did they teach them those things, but they taught him the truthfulness of it. And that it's real. It's not a wishy-washy faith that's based in historical reality. It happened. So he doesn't need to waste his time on any new novelties. He doesn't have to search out any new thing. He can stand firm on that. Don't spend time on things that may squander your energies, but to remain in the truth which he had learned. We have all this digital stuff, which is great. But there's power in the gospel. You don't have to add to it. It's there. Are we truly convinced As the people of God that the gospel is the answer. I mean you're staking on it, you're standing on it, and you're firm what's that old song we have Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, over a foretaste of glory divine, air of salvation, purchase of blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Have we lost that to some degree? Because we're really convinced of the gospel truth. Would there be 19 million lost people running around our state? Now, we can't force somebody to come to salvation. But we have the duty to tell them about him. We need to tell them about the love and also demonstrate that love. What's our logo here? Living by faith, known by love. He goes, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings. Some were written of that Holy Scripture, but literally it's sacred writings. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. From childhood. Now, the interesting thing we must note here is that Jewish parents would start teaching their children the Torah about the age of five. Tell them about the commandments of God. Now, I know, usually around the age of 10 or 11 or 12, somewhere in there. Those kids will learn the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They will know that by memory in Hebrew. Now, I can speak a little Hebrew, but I'll embarrass myself. Don't ask me to do that right now. But the point is they start teaching from early on about scripture. He says, from childhood, you've known these things that parents will also transmit things about morals and faith and values. Have we lost that in America? Josephus, who is a first century Jewish historian, uses that phrase, holy scripture or sacred writings. And by the way, it's the only place you find it used in the Bible. But Josephus used it to describe the Old Testament. And what is it doing here? It's stressing The sacredness or the holiness of Timothy's learning in contrast to the false teaching that was out there. Don't listen to the false teaching. Listen to the sacred writings. You've known them from childhood. Don't listen to that mindless chatter that's out there. And they're able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the aim of. ...of the Scripture is to point to Christ. The Old Testament points to Him. And the New Testament points back to Him. It's all about Christ. That's what they do. They talk about God's salvation plan, This wisdom and enlightenment... ...that the Scripture gives... Led Timothy to faith in Christ... Now, the scriptures do not provide salvation in and by themselves. But like I said this a minute ago, they point to the very one who can. This is an important reminder that children need good doctrine just like adults do. A week from Wednesday, we're going to, we're going to start BLAST again. BLAST stands for Bible Learning and Spiritual Training. Reason we're doing this because children need to hear about the gospel. They need good doctrine. Why we invest our time and energy and resources into that program. Why we support the summer reading program. Why is that important? Now we're not necessarily teaching the Bible in that setting, but I want the kids to be able to read and discern what they're reading, comprehend what they're reading. So one day they can pick up the Bible for themselves and read it. That's important. Do you realize that most people in our society, now please don't misunderstand me, I'm not trying to be, look at me like a rat, but most people in our society can't even pick up a book and read it, then take a test on it, see if they comprehend what they just read. That's why we take time with this after-school program that's kicking up at the school. We want to help them, because we believe what Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he's old, he will not part from it. That's why they're so precious. And you see this right here They're from childhood. And here we go with the 16th verse. All scripture is inspired by God or lily God breathed. This is not a high and lawfully doctrine. Think about what that's just saying, that God got close enough to humanity and spoke the words to him. How close an intimate picture that is. That God would do that. And that reminds you of three concepts we need to kind of look over this morning as we talk about inspiration of Scripture. And that's revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Revelation is basically God allowing or telling human beings about who he is. Some information about himself. And there's two kinds of revelation. There's general and there's specific. General is basically what you get in creation. Go outside, you look at the stars, look at the earth, and creation cries out, there is a creator. That's general revelation. Pacific where God specifically spoke to an individual. In Ephesians 3, 3, Paul talks about this, perhaps referring back to his Damascus Road experience. And this inspiration, the influence of the Holy Spirit, why People pinned, the Holy Spirit was moving on them to pin the words of Scripture. Now, there's three different ways you can look at this. Was it just straight dictatorship where they said exactly what they are supposed to do and they just took it down like a, like a uh, dictating machine? Or plenary where they were involved in it, but God used the very words that he wanted in there? Or was it just thoughts? I hold the, plen- the plenary view which says not only is the Scripture, but every word is. Because let me tell you something, the Greek language is so specific. And so when you read scripture, you ask yourself, why do you use that word? And before I labor any more than this, any serious student of the Bible will look at more than one translation. Really want to get into it? And since you ask the question, why is that word being used here? If you start starting language. It's very specific. So the words themselves are what God wanted them to use. He's the one. Now, you can see their personality come through in the writing. I know that because I suffered through Greek and seminary. Let me tell you, Paul loves run-on sentences. Sometimes the sentences go five, six, seven, eight verses long. But that's how Paul wrote. Some of them follow some of the grammar rules, some of them don't. So you see their personality coming out in those writings too. So God used all that, but yet it was still God guiding their hands. And then the illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit that helps you understand what you're reading. John 14, 26. Jesus talks about this that the helper will come who the Father will send, and he will lead you anything I taught you and help illuminate it. So you have may not have been the seminary. But if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit within you. It's going to help illuminate the scripture to understand what it says. So as we read scripture, yeah, what are you saying here? Help me understand it. That's the reason Bible study is so important. Not that we sit around and talk about how smart we are, but you get that opportunity to re, uh, react with another. Hey, that's what I think this means. What do you think was going on here? And you can learn from the Bible and learn from each other. And all three of these are dependent upon each other because you have inspiration to make sure that the truth is accurately communicated. All right? Well, first you have revelation, which reverses the truth. Then you have inspiration to make sure it's accurately recorded or communicated. And then you have illumination, which helps you understand the truth, which is being communicated. And the very fact that the Bible is literally God-breathed, We can make this statement, it's infallible, has no mistakes, will never misguide you. It's inherent, has no error whatsoever. That's why we believe the Bible. Now there's more to this subject, but for time purposes this morning, that's all I want to say about it right now. But if we don't believe the Bible to be the word of God, then what are we going to stand on? So it is God's word. He breathed it and the men wrote it. And because it's infallible, inherent, guess what else it is? It has authority. Not because I'm the one preaching it, because it's the very words of God. What he wanted to communicate to you and I. So after he lays down that doctrine, he goes, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Training, teaching. Teaching, the source of Christian doctrine, because of all the heresy that was going around, Paul is saying, stick to the scriptures. Stick to them for sound doctrine. Now he's actually in this passage referring to the Old Testament, Old Testament, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet, and all that hadn't been written yet. But if you look at the Old Testament, what do you have in the in the Old Testament? You have the doctrine of, of man, the value of life, Genesis one, creation. You have the fall of man, Genesis 3. And you have the nature of atonement in Isaiah chapter 53. You read about the person who's going to provide the atonement for us. So even in the Old Testament, you have this pointing towards greater fulfillment that we read in the New Testament. But it's all there. How do you know life has value? Because God created you. And we've lost that. People think nothing of taking the human life anymore. Absolutely they don't care. Look at the news. They do have value. They do have they were created. And the cross reminds me how precious they are in the eyes of God, that He would let His Son die for each and every one of us. I raised three girls, they're all grown now, but I'm gonna bear, I'm gonna read this again. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not worth anything. All of you, listen to me. Don't let anyone tell you that. You're not some product of some cosmic goo out there in the universe. God created you and knitted you together in your mother's womb. Life is precious. It needs to be protected from conception all the way to natural physical death. We need to protect it. You have reproof. They're rebuking, not only for false teachers, but us as believers. Yes, believe it or not, I can make a mistake. Oh, look, I'll leave you wide open, knock it out of the park, and you don't say anything. I can make a mistake. But it's there to rebuke me, say, Tim, you're in error here. Read it again. For correcting, restoring one's doctrine or personal practice, the means of God uh, using this to restore someone who's forfeited their spiritual position at one time, how he will bring them back, he will rebuke them, say you're wrong, and then correct them in the right way. He treats us like children. Now, I have one of mine here, and you can ask you this afterwards, but we didn't discipline our children because we just like disciplining children. Why do we discipline our children? Because we love them, we care. We want to correct them. That's what God does. And the book of Hebrews tells us if if you undergo the correction of God, that indicates that you are a true or son or daughter because He's loving you like one of His own. He wants to correct you and bring you back. Where if you never feel the correct, correct the hand of God, perhaps you need to check your relationship with Christ. He corrects those who He loves. He's looking at us like a like a parent would, but He loves us. He loves Allison. Let it this way. Imagine a beach and all the grains of sand. How I love my daughter, I love her very much is this a grain of that sand compared to the whole beach of God's love. I can't comprehend how much he loves her, how much he loves me, or how much he loves you. Training in righteousness. That word is also used in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, which is talking about parents having a Way of disciplining their kids to develop Christian character. Here, it's like a system of reading Scripture help correct us to develop a Christ-like nature in us. See, when you became a believer, it didn't stop the moment you were baptized. Yes, you became in a justified relationship with Christ in that moment, but now becomes a process of sanctification. And how do you do that? Word of God. Word of God speak. Would you pour down like rain, washing my eyes to see your majesty? That should be our cry. In fact, Southern Baptists specifically, we used to ground telling people, We're the people of the book. But biblical literacy has creeped in within the church. If we want to know what God says, we need to pick up His word and read it. Study it. And not just look like we look at that chair and go, that's nice. But then we must be convinced of it and take action. And he sums it up this way. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We use scripture for all those things, for training, for correction, for rebuking. It will result in a person who is fit fit and in shape or condition, equipped to handle anything God may throw in front of them, any ministry, any opportunity. If Timothy would nature his spiritual life in the scriptures, he would be fully prepared to do whatever God puts in front of him. And I've said this before, and I'll say this as long as I live, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And right now, he may be calling you, and I know he's calling all of us to a deeper walk. He's calling you to do something right now. He said, I don't know how to do that. God can and will equip you for that task. But he wants to know if you're going to stand up and say, here I am. Use me. What a tragedy it is for any Christian to be labeled as spiritually unprepared. When the means of instruction and preparation are right there in your hands. How many translations do we have of the Bible now in English? Most of them are good translations. If you want to get more into it, I'm telling you, get more than one translation, lay out side by side. If you want to go deeper to that, pick up the Greek and Hebrew. They have programs out there. You can go as deep as you want. All that's out there. Technology is wonderful. Well, you take people hours and hours. You can just poop, poop, poop and find out exactly what it means right then and there. Save a lot of time. But it takes study. It takes prayer. It takes preparation. But God's given us everything that we need. Think about it. He, he's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you his word, translated in your native tongue. We can pick it up and read it. He's given you other believers to help you along the way. What else do you want God to do? He's provided for your eternal salvation. It reminds you of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul writing to the believers there in Philippi, So then, my beloved, just have you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. In other words, keep obeying. You don't see me. I know you're obedient when I'm there, but keep cracking on even when I'm not there. Look what he says, work out your, not work for, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is the work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation, not work for. There's got to be work going on that we're in a constant state of learning about the word of God. We're constantly reading it and studying it. Praying over it. One thing I do on a Monday or Monday night at the latest, I look at the next text, which I'm going to preach, and I read it. I may look at the original language, but I just read it and read it, and then I just think about it. And let i call it, chew on it. Let it marinate in your mind and in your heart. And I encourage you to do that. Start reading through a book. book of John is good. But if you've never read through the Bible, book of John is a great place to go. And as you read, before you start reading, ask God to help you understand. And don't feel like you have to read all the whole Pick a chapter, a few of yours, and say, God, reveal what this means to me. And then just let it saturate your mind and your heart. Spend time with him, and he'll show you so many things and teach you. See, the key to living an uncompromising life lies in our ability to exercise discernment. And discernment begins with the Word of God. If you don't get anything else, get that. And I would tell you, in the church and in the secular, discernment is where we're falling so short today. Look at our Congress. Look at our politicians. Look at our leaders. They can't discern. In other words, they're constantly trying to justify their actions based on the actions of somebody else. You ever notice that when politicians debate? Well, what's your score? Well, I ain't going to do what so-and-so does, and he did this, and she did it. I don't care what they did. What are you going to do? But they're constantly justifying their actions or inactions based on the actions of somebody else. And let me tell you, dear beloved, when I stand before God, pick on Jerry. Hey, God, I'm better than Jerry was. Look what Jerry did. Because that's not going to hold any water on that day. I will be held accountable for what I did. I can't justify my actions by the actions or inactions of somebody else, and that's what our society is doing. People leave churches; they get out of stuff because of the actions or inactions of somebody else. Well, that leads me to my next question: If I do that, am I really convinced, Are I Really convinced about the message? as soon as things go wrong, I turn and run. You know, uh, the FBI has special agents that do certain tasks and specialize in one area. And they have people who go out, look for counterfeit money. They go out to places where people might be printing their own money and they, they know how to spot it. They go and they look for it, try to discover it. They don't... Discover they don't train to find counterfeit money by studying the counterfeit money. They study the bills, how they're actually printed, every little detail for every bill. They know it front and back. They know it so well that if I try to pass a counterfeit, they'll see right off the bat, no matter how well I try to hide it, this is a counterfeit bill because the real one doesn't have that or the real one does have this. That's how they spot it so fast. They study the real thing in order to find the false, the counterfeit. Dearly beloved, that's how we have to be with the word of God. We have to know what it says. And if we don't know what it says, know how to go to it and look it up for ourselves. And we have to make sure we know what it says. So when that counterfeit teaching comes our way, we can spot it and say, well, that's not exactly what the verse says. Now, here's a a radical illustration of that. And I've said this before. Ladies, the reason you're having problems in your marriage is because as Ephesians talks about, you need to submit to your husbands. Is that what that scripture really says? What does that scripture really talk about? Well I just pull the whole verse out of context. Because the verse I need to says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Whoa, hey, ooh. That means I have to love this woman and I'm willing to die for her. I took that wife submit. Completely out of context. And if you look at back the other way, it talks about submitting unto one another as submitting to the Lord. This whole idea that my wife will submit to me as I submit to God, as we submit to each other. So I'm taking that verse, I'm taking it out, and you've heard it, Yeah, it's in the Bible, now I've just twisted it. That's how false teaching happens. That's why we have to know what the scriptures say. So anyways, yeah, well, yeah, it does say that, but now you're twisting it. Taking it out of context. The sermon begins with the word of God. So you say, well, maybe you're sitting here. I don't know if I'm saved. What does scripture say about salvation? Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died and rose again, you will be saved. Jesus talks about if you confess me before men, I'll confess your name before my father in heaven. And once you're saved, once you give your life, you're justified. Scripture tells us that nothing can take you out of his hand. No scheme of man, no power of the devil can pluck you out of his hand. He has you securely in his hand. What's to talk about uh, sanctification? We are to become more like Christ. Right? So Christ can be seen in us. Or as John put it, he must increase and I must decrease. That all applies. But you need to know what Scripture says. How is God speaking to you this morning? Perhaps you need to come for salvation. Perhaps there has never been a time in your life when you realize that Jesus can save you, that you need a Savior, because we have all broken His laws and commandments. Perhaps you've done that sometime, You kind of lost your way. And now that little conviction that you're feeling, that's God's hand saying, come on back to me. Come on back. You know what I found out? When I get serious and I repent and confess, I find God like this. Come on back. Come on back. Or maybe he's calling you to walk deeper, maybe a specific ministry, maybe something that he's burned your heart as we continue to see growth here, and he's calling you to do something, and you're I don't know what to do. I'm telling you. I will say this, and we'll close with this one statement, and I may, maybe I shouldn't say this. It could get me in trouble. The first time I preached, I studied for like three weeks straight, 12 hours a day, notes, notes, notes everywhere. You know how long the sermon lasted? Four minutes. I wish he preached like that now. (laughs) But looking back at it, the pastor had me do the announcements, which I never spoke in front of people, and Tammy will tell you that I sat in a corner. But I look back at how God was kicking me out of that, getting me prepared to speak before a crowd of people, and then preparing me to, to go to school and learn more about him, become more like Christ. It's all been a little baby steps. And I'm telling you, you can experience the same thing, too, if you're just obedient and take that first step towards him. Trust me, if he can use someone like me, I know he can use you. And he will use you in ways you can't even constantly comprehend the ways he can use you. But he wants you to come. He wants to use you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And you're here now, and he's talking to you. And that still, small voice, that God who created everything that we see, loves you that much. And he's calling out to you to have that intimate relationship with him through his son. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of your church made up of fellow believers that we can lean on. We can rejoice with, that we can laugh with, that we can weep with, Father, in all different seasons of life. But most of all, Father, we thank you for your son. The gift of life, the gift of eternal salvation. We don't deserve it. It's all because of your grace. And Father, I pray, as you continue to speak to your people here this morning, that you have knocked down walls and break down chains. And Father, I pray that we will be obedient to your call in our lives.